Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online from the cottage. We're honored to have you along for the ride. And we're in the third week of a series that we've called The Journey to Faith. And the series is all about what it looks like for an adult to make a decision to become a follower of Jesus. And in case you're joining us for the first time today, you should know that I began this series two weeks ago by making at least what I thought was a really fascinating observation. Uh, it goes like this. Adults don't generally become Christians after working through their objections. Uh, adults don't become Christians after finding answers to all their questions. I mean, I mean that can certainly happen. Uh, but in my experience, it's extremely rare. And if you said, okay, well then how do adults become Christians? I would tell you that, well, adults become Christians because of something, well, something that happens to them that sort of shrinks their questions in such a way that it enables them to carry them with them across the line of faith in Jesus. And as we've noted all along, that something is always intensely personal. Let me say it a bit differently. There's a journey to faith that takes you around your questions and objections instead of through them. And I'm telling you, as much as that may seem like an affront to your intellect, it's, it's not. Uh, in fact, even though you may have never thought about it, well, this is something that you've done many times in your life. Whenever you've allowed something that's unexplainable to be overshadowed by something that's undeniable. And in order to show you what I mean by that, I want to give you an example from the world of baseball. Now, let's be honest. None of you saw that coming because I am not an athlete. I was a mathlete, okay? But this particular something I picked up years ago during a physics lecture that I endured during my sophomore year at the University of Michigan, and I will refrain from any football comments, but I'm really excited about this year. Okay. So way back then, the year of our Lord, 1993, my professor introduced us to the incredible and fascinating research done by a dude named Robert Adair, who at the time was a physicist at Yale University. And for some reason, uh, Professor Adair had become fascinated by the science of hitting a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. If you said, well, why was he fascinated by it? I would simply tell you that he understood that according to his research, it shouldn't be possible. Like, you should never, ever be able to hit a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. And then he really nerded out, and so I will then echo his nerdiness by showing you a chart as to why he said this is impossible. So first he said that it takes 200 milliseconds, two, which is not very long, but anyway, for the batter to find the ball after it's pitched in the air. And then he said it takes another 100 milliseconds for the batter to decide how to swing at the aforementioned ball. Uh, then fight. Finally, whoa, I don't know what just happened there. I glitched. Anyway, finally, the swing itself takes another 150 milliseconds to cross the plate for a total, and I already did the math for you, so don't worry, of 450 milliseconds. But, but here's the thing. It takes less than 400 milliseconds for a 90-mile-per-hour fastball to travel from the pitcher's mound to home plate, which means, scientifically speaking, it should be impossible for anyone ever to hit a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. But, as you know, if you follow baseball, this happens all the time. In fact, professional baseball players have been known to hit even 100-mile-per-hour fastball. Therefore... If you think about it, we all believe it's possible, even though technically it's not. <laughs> and, and here's why. And, and we said this, the undeniable 
overwhelms or overshadows the unexplainable. If we observe or experience something that we believe to be impossible, we still believe it because what we experienced was undeniable. And I wanted to start there today because um, of the question I want to chase down with you with our time together. And it goes like this. What if the same principle functions in many people's journey to faith? And I've been a pastor now for a long time, and I'm convinced that it does. In fact, I think it's been that way really for as long as there have been people who attempted to make a journey to faith. And in order to show you what I mean, what I want to do is explore one of my favorite stories from the life of Jesus. And if you've been around here, you know, like he says that every week. Well, I have a lot of favorite stories from the life of Jesus, so don't judge, right? But this particular story is awesome because it brilliantly illustrates what can happen when someone chooses to ignore the undeniable because they find it so unbelievable. And this particular story happened around 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem. And I found an artist rendering online, which I thought was really, really cool, of Jerusalem in the first century to give you a sense of what the city would have looked like. And as you can see here, by far the most prominent structure at the time was the Jewish temple. The whole city sort of revolved around that structure. Anyway, in his account of the life of Jesus, a man by the name of John, who was one of Jesus' original disciples, uh, recorded that one day, he says, as Jesus went along, and again, they're in Jerusalem, Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth, And his disciples, that would have been John too, asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And if you think about it, that's a strange question, at least from our perspective. Like, we we would never ask that question, right? But you should know that it wasn't for first century Jewish people. Because they believed in a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. In other words, whenever someone was suffering, they believed it was because of someone's sin. And and so they believed that the suffering person was more or less getting what they deserved. And obviously, if you think through the implications of that belief, it, it would impact the compassion shown to people with real needs because, well, they were looked on with judgment instead of mercy because they were generally believed to have been cursed by God for something they did or something their parents did. And we know that, I mean, there certainly can be a connection between our behavior and suffering. We've all experienced the negative side of that. And we also know that sometimes we suffer because, well, of other people's sin. But if you think about it, whenever that's the case, it's generally pretty obvious. And uh, Jesus knows that too. And so in his response to his disciples' question, he pointed out that, well, when the connection isn't obvious, uh, there probably isn't a connection. So Jesus said it this way. He said in answer, he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he says, this happened, and this is interesting, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And I was just reading through this this week, and I thought, boy, isn't that something to think about? Jesus basically said, no, this guy's physical challenge actually provided an opportunity for God to move in power in his life, to meet him in his place of need. And, And I just found myself thinking this week, that's what he did, and that's what he does. Um, Anyways, Jesus continued to speak. Um, He appeared to change topics, even though he didn't. So let me show you what he said, and I'll tell you what I think he meant. Jesus said to his disciples, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Then he says, night is coming when no one can work. And then he said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And I think the disciples were like, 
hmm, right? Jesus got really philosophical there. But, but what he's trying to say here is that Jesus' identity, like who he is, would never be more evident to them than during his time on the earth. His light would never burn brighter than it would burn in moments like the one they were about to experience. And so the implied encouragement to Jesus' disciples is, hey guys, lean in, watch what happens, and learn from what happens, because I need you to be crystal clear on who I am. So then following the statement, Jesus does something really strange. And John described it for us this way. He said, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. And let's be honest, that is gross, right? And it's kind of rude. I mean, did Jesus ask the guy before he put mud on his eyes, or did he just kind of do it, right? Because either way, the guy would not have seen it coming. <laughs> that, I, I was back and forth all week. Can you do that? But yeah, what happens next makes it okay, I think. All right. So yeah, but whatever the particulars, whether he asked permission or not, it would have been a painfully awkward moment. And after applying the mud to the guy's eyes, Jesus told him to go. He says, wash in the pool of Siloam. And the Siloam means scent in Hebrew. So go wash in the pool called scent. And here's something that's really cool. Uh, you can actually visit the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem today. They've found it. Uh, in fact, on our trip last fall, our friend Franklin from the Dominican Republic, many of you who've been on the, to the site down there know Franklin. Uh, he joined us in Israel last year, but he was with us and he decided at the end of the walk to the pool of Siloam to cool off in the pool of Siloam before asking if it was okay to do so. <laughs> and so being a compassionate pastor type, I took his picture and he said, oh, is it okay that I'm in here? And I said, well, no one else is in there. <laughs> and he said, should I get out? And I said, probably. No one is threatening to arrest or shoot us, but it is the Middle East. So I would get out of the water until we figure it out. Anyway, uh, so the blind guy with mud on his eyes goes to the pool of Siloam and John recorded that after he got to the pool, he said the man went and washed, and look at this, came home seeing. In other words, the guy literally walked to the pool. He chose to trust Jesus. He said, well, why would he do that? I said, I would argue that this guy had heard rumors about what Jesus could do. And consequently, he had the courage to trust him, and then he had the experience of learning firsthand that well, the rumors were true. I mean, we read the words and they're sort of detached from emotion, but just imagine this guy got to see for the first time in his life. And not surprisingly, he heads home to see his parents. And upon his arrival, John recorded, and this is fascinating, he said his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Like, isn't this the same guy? And so then it kind of divided the crowd. Some claimed that he was. Others said, you know, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. So if you ever wonder who's the man, this guy, the man. Yeah, I am that guy. And so now before we go any farther, I need to ask you a question. I mean, do you know why the people in this guy's neighborhood had questions? Right, because it didn't make any sense. Like this guy had been blind from birth and this guy who they had seen for years begging for expressions of compassion from people who knew him and from strangers was suddenly 
seeing. It was unexplainable. And so they asked him the obvious question. They said, well, how, how then were your eyes opened? How did this happen? And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. And then I love this. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Okay, that's actually funny. Let me tell you why. How would he have possibly known where Jesus was, right? He had never seen Jesus or anything until very recently, right? I mean, Jesus could have been standing right next to him, and he wouldn't have known that it was Jesus. Now, anyway, after recognizing that something unprecedented and miraculous had happened, the recently healed man's neighbors do what they had been instructed to do. And so here's what happened in first century Israel. And they took the man to a group of religious leaders who were called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had been charged with verifying miracles. And you say, well, why did they ever decide they needed to verify miracles? And it was a really big deal to them because, well, the Pharisees had been tasked by the leadership with identifying someone that they called the Messiah. Now, Messiah is Hebrew. The, the Greek word is Christ. This Messiah or Christ was an anointed one who they believed would one day be sent by God to rescue Israel from its oppression and then lead Israel as her final and forever king. And there's a whole bunch of prophecies that point to the Messiah, who he would be, what he would do in the Old Testament. And they believed, among other things, that the Messiah would be capable of performing incredible miracles. And so after the healing, the question that surfaced in the heart of the neighbors and the question that rose in the heart of the Pharisees was, could Jesus be the promised one? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Christ? Now, before describing what happened next, John gave us a critical piece of information because as it turns out, I don't think John recorded this story because of the healing. Check out what John tells us next. He says, the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath, right? And you should know, I mean, if you're familiar with the Bible, you kind of get it. But if you're newer to the Bible or newer to the journey to faith, you may not know this. If this was a scene in a movie, what would happen here is that the music would shift to something ominous, like when Darth Vader's ship enters an otherwise peaceful space scene in Star Wars. Are you with me on this, right? Because Jesus, in this moment, had done it again. And he had done it on purpose. You say, well, what had he done? Well, according to first century Jewish religious uh, teaching, it was sinful to heal or to practice medicine on the Sabbath unless it was necessary to save someone's life. And you say, well, why would they, they believe that? Well, they believed that healing violated God's command to his people not to work on the Sabbath, like one of the Ten Commandments. That's why the Pharisees, when this miracle was brought to them for validation, were very concerned about how and when Jesus had performed the healing. And so they asked the formerly blind man, and he answered them. He said, how did this happen? He, said, he put mud on my eyes, the man said, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, and look at this. This man, this is Jesus now, not the blind guy. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. No way. Not possible. And you should know that. Um, this whole idea of this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Uh, technically, that wasn't true. 
What Jesus didn't keep was their interpretation of the Sabbath law. He didn't technically break any of God's written laws. The problem in this scene was that Jesus didn't fit their expectations and their understanding of God's laws. And so consequently, they decided that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Now, now before we go any farther, just notice something with me. Um, The Pharisees may not have been able to explain it, but the healing was undeniable. And so they may not have thought about it in these terms, but they had to choose in that moment between the unexplainable and the undeniable. And from their perspective, it was unexplainable that God would allow the Messiah to heal on a Sabbath. But see, it was also undeniable that a man who had never seen before could. And so not surprisingly, John recorded that in response to this tension, the Pharisees asked the blind man for insight. They said to him, well, okay, what do you have to say about him? I mean, it was your eyes he opened. You were closest to him. He even touched you, literally. And the man replied, he's a prophet. He kind of dodges the question. He goes on, the Pharisees still did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Get mom and dad here. Something isn't lining up. And so they asked him, you know, is this your son? He said, is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? And they say, well, we know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. I mean, we know that for sure. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. We weren't there. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. He said, well, why would they answer the Pharisees that way? Well, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Pharisees. For already the Pharisees had decided, look at this, that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, would be put out of the synagogue. They would be excommunicated from their community of faith. And I I find it fascinating and tragic that the Pharisees in this moment refused to see what could be seen. And they refused to discover what could be discovered. Like they were afraid to peer beyond the known and into the unknown. And they were terrified with the idea that their theology, the things that they tied off to, to know who they were in the world, that they might be wrong. And so because of all of that, they were unable, incapable to even consider that God might not play by their rules. And so in this moment, they essentially demanded that the formerly blind man explain what happened to him within their predetermined expectations. Like, what you just said can't be. So how did it really happen? And of course, the irony in this moment is that if you think about it, it was the religious leaders who were blind. They were blinded by their presuppositions, and they had, like, suffocating confirmation bias. They could really only receive information that affirmed and confirmed what they already Believed, And so they called the formerly blind guy back. And they told him, they say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. So now not only is Jesus not the Messiah, he's clearly a sinner, right? And he replied, and I love, this is like one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I know I have a lot of those, just bear with me, right? Okay. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now... Someone should write a song like that, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. In other words, guys, you may not like my explanation, but it's true. 
Like, I don't know everything, and I certainly don't understand everything. But here's the thing. As it turns out, you don't need to understand everything to believe something. You don't need to understand everything to believe something. That's actually our big idea for today. You really don't. And you don't have to be able to articulate how something happened to know that it happened. And I'm telling you, that was true for the recently healed man in the story, and it is true for you and me today. In, in fact, um, and maybe this is where you've been hung up on your journey to faith. Like, you're somebody that just has to understand everything before you believe anything. And I get that. It's totally fair. I mean, I'm wired the same way. But, but think about this. What if we're not supposed to understand everything? Or maybe even better, what if we can't understand everything? Like, what if there are questions about God and how he works that don't have answers this side of eternity? But maybe instead, you and I have been invited to consider what there is to consider. Like, I love that the formerly blind man admits that he can't answer all the Pharisees' questions. Like, he doesn't know if Jesus is the Messiah, and he doesn't know, you know, he's not really to render a judgment on Jesus being a sinner because he broke the Sabbath. He doesn't know, you know, then if you pull back a little bit, he doesn't know why there's so much bad in the world if God is good. And he doesn't know why he had to live as a blind man for many, many years before being healed. He has all kinds of unanswered questions. But see, he knows all he needs to know. He was blind, and now he sees. And that, that, that moment in the story actually reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from the first season of the TV series, The Chosen. And if you haven't watched this yet, um, you're probably going to want to after I show you the clip that we're about to watch together. But it's It's amazing in the way it portrays Jesus and his disciples. But uh, the moment I want to show you in just a moment is the scene when a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, so one of these religious leaders, uh, Nicodemus approaches a woman named Mary Magdalene, who he had been unsuccessful in helping escape from a profound darkness in her life, uh, but who, he had learned, had since experienced a profound healing and change. Uh, and as the scene opens, it's about a minute and a half long, but as the scene opens, Nicodemus is desperate to understand. He, he, he's almost panicked. Like, how did this happen? He has all sorts of questions. And Mary, she doesn't have many answers other than the only one that mattered. Let's watch this together. I just want to understand how it happened. It makes two of us. <laughs> how long after my visit did you feel the change? It wasn't anything you did. It was someone else. Someone else? He called me Mary. He said, I am his. I am redeemed. And it was so. 
did this? I don't know his name. And even if I did, I could not tell you. Why not? His time for men to know has not yet come. His time for men? He performs miracles and seeks no credit? What does he look like? Is he a member of Sanhedrin? Would you at least know him if you saw him again? <laughs> I don't know why I am sharing this with you. I, I don't understand it myself. But here is what I can tell you. I was one way. And now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. I don't understand it myself. But here is what I can tell you. I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. If we're honest, um, for many of us in this room, that's our story. Like through a variety of challenging life circumstances, we reached the end of ourselves. And maybe, maybe we had a season where our life was controlled by an addiction. It just had its claws in us. Then we reached the end. Or maybe we had a key relationship reach a point where it just wasn't recoverable and it broke our heart in a way that brought us to the end of ourselves. Or maybe we had a season when we were lonely and broken and had nowhere else to go. Whatever the specifics, you reach the end, and we just, we cried out to God, and, and though we can't fully explain it, something happened. It's almost like we were blind, and suddenly we could see, and we've never been quite the same since. And, and when we tell our story, we freely acknowledge that, that we can't explain everything, but, but we've experienced something undeniable. And that something allowed us to carry all of our very valid unanswered questions with us across the line of faith in Jesus. On, on the, on the, before that, we were sort of exploring and wondering and, and seeking. And now we would say, you know, I, I don't know, but I, am, I know that now I believe. I'm a Jesus follower. I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I want to share something that's a little bit personal because um, every so often someone will ask me if I have any unanswered questions about God. Like they, they've been through a serious, something in their life and it's just overwhelmed them and and, and they, like, they, they look at me and they go, you know, you stand on the stage with your little weird microphone thing and, you know, I mean, you really seem like you got this thing, like you're, you're confident, you're convinced, you're committed and all that. And do you ever struggle in private? And I always answer the same way, right? I always say, of course I do. Of course I do. Do I have questions? Of course I do. I'm around so much tragedy. Of course I have questions. Why? Why, God? Why would this happen? 
And those questions rise, but see, whenever they rise up in my heart, I remind myself of what is undeniable, of the things that I've seen, the things I've read, and the things I've experienced, beginning with the fact that around 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world, a wonder-working rebel priest showed up in Israel with a counterintuitive message. There had never been anybody that had taught anything like this before. He taught his followers to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecuted them. I mean, sociologically speaking, Jesus' message should never have made it out of the first century. And his, his teachings really weren't why he made it out of the first century, right? I mean, because, because Jesus also promised his followers that after he was crucified, he would rise again from the grave, And then after his crucifixion, hundreds of eyewitnesses came forth and said, he did it. And then a few of his first followers wrote about it. And now thousands of years later, on every continent in the world, you can find men and women who will tell you stories, even though they still have questions, but stories of how they have a personal relationship with their heavenly father through Jesus. And those stories are eerily similar to the stories that we hear in America. Like what's undeniable is that all over the world, people have embraced God as their heavenly father because Jesus invited them to. And they've embraced Jesus as their personal savior and their lives have been undeniably changed. They're not perfect. They're a work in progress. But they're loved, and because of Jesus, they believe they stand at peace with their Heavenly Father. And so so I'm I'm not here to convince you about Jesus. I really can't convince you. Instead, my, my goal for today is simply to let you know that there is an avenue by which you can pick up your questions and carry them with you across the line of faith in Jesus. Because as we've said, you don't need to understand everything to believe something. Um, and now uh, we have a special treat as we close our time together. I just couldn't help myself, by the way. But um, because as you noticed, it was the formerly blind man uh, who we read about today that inspired some of the greatest lyrics in church history because it was he who first said, I was blind and now I see. And so I, I feel like I should be sued for malpractice if I did not invite you all to stand and sing Amazing Grace together. And uh, let's, let's, let's do this right, friends. Like, let's lift the roof or raise the, I don't know how that works, but anyway. Uh, and then I'll close our time together in prayer.
joined us this morning and uh, you really need to talk to someone, we'd love to invite you uh, to join some volunteers under the screen to your left after I dismiss us and we'd love to spend some time just hearing a bit of your story and praying for you. For the rest of us, let me close our time. Heavenly Father, for those of us our story is some version of I was one way and then I met Jesus and now I am different. We just say thank you. Thank you for calling us by name. Thank you for inviting us into relationship. Thank you for Jesus. And I also pray for people in this room or online or people who we're connected to who are still searching and they're still asking, friends that have questions that are keeping them from from embracing Jesus, I pray that you would call their name, that you would use us to encourage them to meet you. 
thank you for the love that you display for every person everywhere. And we celebrate you for your son, the Messiah, the Christ. It is in his name, the name above all names, that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.